food production is key and animals make up a huge part of, of the food uh, that's consumed and, and a larger part as people become more wealthy. Um, so I think you've, you've got an easy sell. Um, you should do it. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Bergen Schmidt. Your partner for improving animal performance. DSM Ferminiche. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM Ferminiche offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. I am your host, Joe McFadden. On this episode, we have a chance to learn from Dr. Benjamin Rehnquist. Dr. Rehnquist is an associate professor in the Department of Animal and Comparative Biomedical Sciences at the University of Arizona. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree from Colorado State University and a Master of Science and Doctor of Philosophy degrees from the University of California at Davis in the fields of animal science as well as nutrition. His research program spans several unique arenas, including the metabolic consequences of obesity, how heat shifts blood flow to influence milk production, and studying the efficiency of milk production. Ben, welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. Joe, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Good to see you. Now, I was recently asked to participate in an annual apocalypse debate at Cornell University. I haven't agreed to to this debate yet, all right? Uh, but the premise is that professors argue for why their discipline should be preserved over the others in the event of apocalypse, all right? So what would we do? And so you have to argue for animal science. Why should we preserve the study of animal science in the event of an apocalypse? Well, you're kind of lucky because this is at least easier than, than a lot of areas I could imagine. Um, obviously, food production is key and animals make up a huge part of, of the food uh, that's consumed and, and a larger part as people become more wealthy. Um, so I think you've, you've got an easy sell. Um, you should do it. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. I should do it, right? I don't know. It's like, I, I probably, you know, they have all kinds of, of disciplines that uh, presented this. So there's like a neuroscientist, a historian. So it's going to be quite interesting. I think the historian has something good on you. That one will be hard to beat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a little nervous because, you know, getting out there in front of the stage, but it should be fun. All right. Well, good answer. So I agree that, you know, animal science plays a role in our society, most likely for the long term. You know, in your studies of domestic animals, 
really provide a lot of insights about the, the animal itself. But from your perspective, how can the study of domestic animals provide us insights into other disciplines? Well, I think the easiest field to actually look at this is uh, the nutrition field. Uh, all of the great nutrition programs across the U.S. and probably worldwide are paired with great animal science programs. And that's because you know, we didn't care a lot about human nutrition. Um, sure, looked at vitamins and minerals and a few things, but we weren't really worried about people getting enough you know, calories or trying to maximize growth or, or handle anything like that. Um, animal science has always been worried about that. And so when the obesity epidemic started um, and we really need to actually understand nutrition, those really strong animal science programs led the forefront for the really strong nutrition programs. Yeah, I have to agree that, you know, I wish, you know, at least in my own day job that we, I would interact more uh, with the human side. I think if I look at past the last several several decades, I think there's probably room to improve that moving forward and, and bring back some of those, those key connections on campuses. But um, yeah, I agree. That's probably a great example. Now, you know, your, your program is, is another great example of how animal science and human biomedicine, those, those interests can sort of interrelate with each other. You know, you know, a portion of your efforts are focused on the obesity epidemic and, you know, keywords or the, the buzz terms that, that we you tend to study include fatty liver disease, type 2 diabetes, and hypertension. You know, how do you respond you know, to the often heard consumer argument that red meat and dairy consumption uh, are contributors to poor human health. Well, I, I we can't argue that, you know, animal protein consumption has its downsides, but it's got immense upsides as well. It's been a big, um, pro big player in improving uh, health and longevity for a long time. And so, uh, we have to remember that everything in moderation is usually a good way to go. Um, I don't. I don't worry terribly about um, addressing the fact that animal proteins are bad because I don't hear that a lot, especially in the obesity field. We're focused, and and our patients are focused more about the health consequences of obesity and how do we eliminate those health consequences. And you know, now with all the new GLP-1 receptor agonists coming out and the amazing weight loss with Ozempic and Wegovy, um, you know, people are starting to see that they may actually have an option to get out of, of, you know, the problems associated with obesity. So I think we're entering a time where the obesity field is caught up and um, we can probably address a lot of the health concerns as well as, as the you know, other concerns associated with obesity and um, can allow people to enjoy the food that they want to consume. Okay. So are there, are there regions of the world, when you talk about the obesity epidemic, I mean, this is something that is certainly um, more um, prevalent, obvious in the United States, but it's certainly present throughout the world in terms of sort of the metabolic phenotype that defines obesity. Are there uniquenesses in terms of that phenotype in different regions of the world that might also that share obesity, but maybe the underlying cause or, um, you know, the mechanisms that are driving these other conditions like fatty liver disease are, are unique. Yeah. So, 
you're kind of stepping out of my wheelhouse uh, due to the simple fact that I try and use a mouse as a model for a human. So, so I try and not really, and the mouse as a model for cattle. Um, so I try to focus on the things that are generally the same and really focus on the mechanism because usually mechanisms are, are fairly consistent across people or, or across animals. Um, one interesting place where there is some sort of a, a, a dichotomy is in India where there's a high incidence of type 2 diabetes, which is the obesity-associated diabetes, uh, which constitutes about 96% of diabetes. Um, and the, um, and th that's occurring in lean people. And so we've got disconnect between type 2 diabetes and obesity um, amongst some of those Indian populations. And most of that is probably associated with fatty liver. Interesting. And so fatty liver occurring in, in lean people. Interesting. Regarding fatty liver, your research focuses in part on the relationship between fat accumulation in the liver and the production of GABA. Okay, what is GABA and what are some of the things that you have discovered? Okay, I first want to tell you that I got into the fatty liver um, realm because I was interested in how it controlled food intake and its role on ketone body production and ketones are essential, um, you know, metabolites, especially, you know, in dairy animals. But, um, yeah, our lab found that as fat built up in the liver, the liver produced more GABA and that's a inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it inhibits neurons and, we think of neurons in our brain, but there are neurons running throughout our body that allow our arms to move, that allow us to breathe, that allow our heart to beat or cause our heart to beat. Um, and our liver is actually communicating to all the other organs in the, in the body through these nerves. And so when it releases GABA, it inhibits the nerve that runs from the liver to the brain. And that changes the activity of all the nerves that are going out to the rest of the body. Okay. Um, all right. So with regards to GABA or fatty liver, and you said you use rodents, uh, mice as your, as your preferred model of choice. I mean, are there unique things about fatty liver disease in a mouse that may not also show up in, that may not show up or may also be present in, in domestic animals? Uh, so we all know that, you know, in the dairy industry, there's this big concern during that transition period of fatty liver. Um, and we also know that dairy cattle or all cattle are always gluconeogenic. Um, and in fact, that liver GABA production is dependent on that gluconeogenic drive. And so uh, GABA may be also playing a role in controlling food intake um, because it controls food intake in mice. It may also be playing a role in, in regulating food intake in dairy animals and beef cattle. So... Has the relationship between GABA and fatty liver disease or intake been explored in, in dairy cattle? It hasn't. Uh, we did a couple preliminary trials, um, but we haven't had enough samples, um, and we don't have a dairy here at the University of Arizona, so I'm somewhat limited in, in getting uh, liver samples. So, All right, Beyond fatty liver, does GABA influence sort of other mechanisms like you know insulin sensitivity? What else could we be considering? Yeah, that's a great point. So it does. It causes GABA causes insulin resistance. Um, GABA produced by the liver causes insulin resistance. If you Google GABA, you're going to get a whole different story. So uh, I want to be really clear. Fatty liver induced GABA production causes insulin resistance. And we all know that insulin resistance 
um, can be a problem because we need to be uh, we need to prevent the mobilization of fat from adipose tissue. And so if the adipose tissue becomes resistant to insulin, we will just exacerbate that fatty liver and cause it to be worse. And when we cause that to be worse, we're going to have more of the metabolic complications like uh, hyperketonemia and, and other issues associated with fatty liver that producers are always trying to avoid. Are there diets? Uh, just one thing. One of the things we do to prevent fatty liver is is feed niacin in the dairy industry. Um, but the, what's really neat about physiology and the dairy cow and, and you and I is we've actually developed our own mechanism. So niacin binds to a receptor that is the exact same receptor as the, the ketones that are produced by the liver bind to. So when the liver has built up fat, it produces a lot of the signal to inhibit lipolysis. And so it's already trying to do that. And that's why niacin is, is relatively ineffective at lowering um, uh, fatty acid mobilization because we've already upregulated the endogenous molecules that do that same thing. So in addition to niacin, are there other dietary nutrients that, that we need to be considering that could influence um, fatty liver and this GABA relationship? I don't believe so. I think the biggest thing that's actually going to result in fatty liver in a dairy animal or in a beef cow is not eating regularly and, and not having nutrients coming into the system. Because if we don't have amino acids coming into the system, if we don't have, and when an animal goes off feed, obviously that's going to happen. But if we don't have um, a good supply of volatile fatty acids, what we're going to end up doing is mobilizing more and more um, lipids from adipose tissue. And we're going to do that because of the fact that those amino acids that normally are being absorbed normally stimulate insulin secretion and prevent fatty acid mobilization. So we just need to make sure that the animals want to go to the bunk regularly and want to eat regularly. And, and perhaps we need to feed them more frequently during the day to encourage um, a more consistent pattern of eating. Okay. And, you know, sort of back to your the human biomedicine interests that you have, I thought I read something that you were involved in some sort of clinical trial as an investigator. Is this true? Or, and, and what is this all about? Yeah, we've taken our findings and we're working with Sam Klein at Washington University. He's a, a clinical investigator. Um, and we're, we're funding the trial with Arizona Biomedical Research Commission for him to look at the effect of inhibiting the um, production of GABA by the liver and and seeing how that affects insulin sensitivity and um, in people that are insulin resistant. And so we're really excited about that. And we actually recently got a DOD grant um, to develop novel inhibitors of hepatic GABA production. And we're working towards that. Um, and we're really excited about doing that. And the reason we need to develop novel inhibitors is the ones that are currently available were developed to inhibit uh, GABA breakdown in the brain. And we need to develop inhibitors that can't get into the brain. Is there any potential for cross-application to domestic animals, so this kind of potential technology? It really depends on, on what we find with uh, the role of liver GABA in uh, controlling food intake in, in dairy cattle or beef cattle. Obviously, in, in other species, in monogastrics like pigs, you could, you could definitely apply 
um, some of this. In fact, what we would want to do um, in in those animals is we'd want to increase GABA production because the time that you and I developed fatty liver, when 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 our ancestors were evolving out on the savanna, uh, when we got fatty liver is when we hadn't eaten for a while. So if you don't eat for a while, what happens is the fats leave your adipose tissue and they go to your liver and they build up there so that your liver has um, plenty of nutrients to provide to the rest of the body because it provides the ketones to your brain that your brain needs to survive when you're starving. Um, we've all heard of the ketogenic diet. That's actually encouraging your liver to make ketones. And so um, when we were evolving, we needed fats to, to leave the adipose tissue, build up in the liver and produce GABA. And that GABA actually encouraged us to want to eat. And so this is actually a signal to encourage food intake. It also encourages insulin resistance because when you haven't eaten for a while, you don't want insulin signaling to be occurring and you don't want you, the rest of the body taking up glucose. You want to leave that glucose for the tissues that absolutely have to have it. This is something I find very interesting considering my own background regarding insulin resistance. And uh, I yeah. look, forward to, look forward to seeing more, Ben, uh, as you generate generate more data uh, regarding GABA and hepatic uh, function. You know, I want to sort of talk a little bit more about your interests in, in domestic animals and really focus in on heat and how it influences milk production. Now, you're from Arizona, and I, I was there for about five months in my life, and I remember getting off the plane that day, and it was pouring rain, okay? And then for five months, there was no more rain, but like a hundred degree temperature. So there's no short of heat in Arizona. How does, how does heat impact um, milk production? Uh, and what are some of the mechanisms at play here? Yeah. So I'm uh, actually originally from Colorado, a small town, uh, Julesburg, Colorado, in the northeast corner. My family fed uh, bull calves from dairies. And so that's why I'm really interested in helping out the dairy industry and helping out, you know, the beef industry as well. Um, Heat is an absolute killer to the dairy industry. Um, and uh, dairy cattle are extremely sensitive to heat. And that's because they've got a lot of endogenous heat production. And so you, your body wants to maintain itself at 37 degrees Celsius or, you know, 101.8. Uh, I think if you're a, a dairy cow, that's the body temperature they want to maintain. And uh, Fahrenheit and because uh, they want to maintain that temperature, there's going to be a balance between the heat that's produced in their body and their ability to release heat to the environment. And then the heat that's actually coming from the environment onto the animal. And so uh, luckily we were talking earlier, it's a nice dry heat here. So shade works really well to keep the animals from having a lot of exogenous heat, um, you know, radiation heat um, entering their body. But the problem we've got is when it's 100 degrees, it's still hard to dissipate the heat. And so sweating helps that and allows for evaporative cooling. Um, but we've got animals that are producing a ton of milk. Um, they're eating a ton of feed. You and I both know that when you, we eat a lot of food, we end up starting to sweat. Um, and that's because of the heat of digestion. And so these animals are just have a ton of endogenous heat that they have to get rid of. And so they're extremely sensitive to uh, environmental heat. And I wasn't at all interested in heat production until I got here at Arizona or, or heat adaptation. But um, 
it's absolutely an amazing subject and it crosses not only into the dairy industry, um, but it really crosses all across all animal production industries. But I also always think about how it can be um, involved with, you know, human health. And if we start thinking about increasing endogenous heat production, exercise is a great model of increased endogenous heat production. Um, and what that all those models do is they increase liver ketone production, just like fatty liver does. And that's to induce vasodilation um, of your blood vessels on your skin so that you can release more heat to the environment. Hmm. So, I mean, is, is there, what do we know, I guess, about heat stress and fatty liver disease, that, that interrelationship? I mean, whether it be, um, you know, function of the liver or um, uh, inflammation, like what, what do we know about the relationship, I guess, um, uh, in, currently in the industry? I think they're fairly distinct um, phenotypes. They both do cause uh, hyperketonemia, um, but they cause it for completely different reasons. I'm not confident that they're connected. The, the one connection that we might be able to make is we talked about how not eating results in fatty liver. If animals are heat stressed, they don't eat. Um, and so uh, it is possible that heat can result in a decrease in food intake that exacerbates fatty liver. Um, and that's kind of where I would see it being connected the most. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that I learned about reading your bio is that you're interested in blood flow. I mean, talk to me about why blood flow matters. Yeah. So uh, I, I started off with the blood flow on the periphery. We talked about how heat causes the liver to produce beta-hydroxybutyrate, one of the ketones, that causes peripheral vasodilation. Niacin causes that same peripheral vasodilation. Interestingly, niacin has been used as a anti-hypercholesterolemic uh, drug. Um, but the problem with it is it causes flushing. And so your skin feels hot because you've got so much peripheral vasodilation. Um, and that causes people to quit taking it. If we understand um, that beta-hydroxybutyrate is acting to cause peripheral vasodilation, we know then we actually have to cause a shrinkage of the blood vessels in the central part of the body. And that's because we need to maintain blood pressure. We can't change the volume of our blood immediately. And so if we're going to open blood vessels on the periphery, we have to shrink the blood vessels towards the center of the body. And in fact, heat decreases blood flow to the digestive tract, to the, to the, if you're a pregnant female, to the um, uterus and, and to the placenta, and it decreases blood flow to the mammary gland. And so uh, while we're having the peripheral vasodilation, we're having central vasoconstriction. And it's this vasoconstriction, and, and that's actually caused by um, a hormone, arginine vasopressin, uh, that is trying to encourage uh, maintenance of blood pressure and keeping water in the body um, that's causing this, this vasoconstriction. And it's our, our work is really focused on how those vasoconstrictive signals that decrease blood flow to the stomach and decrease blood flow to the mammary gland are decreasing feed intake and decreasing milk production um, in the heat-stressed animal. And, and we've done quite a bit of work in this area, and, and others have as well. In fact, a lot of people have shown that if you just inject an animal with arginine vasopressin, and they've done this in goats, they've done this in sheep, they've done this in chickens, they've done this in mice, and that's 
I say I always work in areas where where the mechanism appears to be conserved, and that's because I work with mice and I want my mice to be a good model for dairy cattle. Um, and the reason I work with mice is because of the genetic models and and the viral models we can use. But uh, if you inject an animal with arginine vasopressin, you will suppress food intake. If you heat stress an animal, you will increase arginine vasopressin and you will suppress food intake. And so our work is really focused on the role of arginine vasopressin in changing blood flow and suppressing food intake and milk production. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about a heat stress dairy cow, I mean, we're all familiar with the body of research that, you know, certainly the drop in food intake is going to be a partial explanation for why there's a drop in milk production. And, And you're fully aware that there's this other narrative that we've talked about over the last decade regarding changes in gut permeability. Now, how do changes in gut permeability relate to blood flow um, at the GI tract? Is, is there a relationship? So that vasoconstriction does result in um, bursting of blood vessels in, in the digestive tract and does cause some problems. And so they may be connected. Um, we've actually done some work. I, I know, you know, obviously, uh, Lance's group has done a, t- a ton on that in that area and, and the rest of the people at Iowa State. But uh, we did a little pilot study where we directly measured uh, gut permeability using a standard model of the ability of fluorescent uh, molecules to get into the blood from the gut that really shouldn't be able to cross in. And we do see that it actually does increase uh, gut permeability mildly, um, but not as much as one might suspect. The increase in gut permeability, at least in the in the acute heat stressed animal, is similar to the increase in permeab- gut permeability we see with diet induced obesity, which also does that. And both of those are, are probably inflammatory states that cause that. So you just mentioned acute. This was one of my follow up questions about how blood flow changes over time. I mean. There's some evidence that the cow can adapt to, you know, prolonged exposure to heat. And so if you're looking at a time course following an initial, you know, heat event and that, that's prolonged over a week or two, let's say, I mean, does that blood flow to the GI tract or to, throughout the body change over time? So we haven't measured that. What we have looked at is how food intake, you know, changes. Obviously, right when the heat hits, the, the food intake just plummets and then it does restore. And so I do think there is likely some restoration of blood flow. Um, we focused primarily on blood flow within the first 24 hours, which, which wouldn't rec- which would only be acute. Um, we do know that arginine vasopressin remains elevated um, out to four days of heat exposure and, and actually goes up higher at, at four days than it was at one day. And so I, I think that we're still going to see that decrease in blood flow. However, there also will be increased water consumption and increased water, uh, total body water. And so increased total blood volume and that increased total blood volume will allow the animal to maintain the peripheral vasodilation without having as much constriction in the, the mesentery or the center of the body. Interesting. So, you know, one, one other final comment, a question about blood flow that has always intrigued me, and, and I don't know if the data exists or not, but we talk about sort of taking blood flow away from the GI tract, but what about reperfusion of the GI tract? And I, I heard there might be a relationship between that 
and oxidative stress at the location of the GI tract. Is there, is there any merit to that or, or no? You're outside of my wheelhouse there. <laughs> I, uh, I have no clue. I can't, I can't speak to that. I, I do want to speak to, to one part that you mentioned earlier, which was that um, the decrease in milk production is associated with a decrease in feed intake. Yeah. And only about 50% of the decrease in milk production can be attributed to the decrease in, in feed intake. And I think that was work by uh, Lance and Shelley and Rob Rhodes and uh, Bob Collier. And we recreated that in the mouse and we, we get the exact same result in the mouse. And so that, you know, validates our model and makes us feel very comfortable with that model. But what's nice about our blood flow model is not only do we think that the change in blood flow is decreasing feed intake, which will decrease milk production, but we also think we have a decrease, well, we know we have a decrease in mammary gland blood flow, which would also decrease delivery of glucose and, and amino acids and fats to the mammary gland and would decrease the ability of the mammary gland to make milk because it didn't have the substrates. All right. So th- that's, that's interesting because, I mean, there's a, there's a narrative building that an activated immune system because of gut permeability could obviously partition glucose and other nutrients to the immune system away from the mammary gland. But now you have this decreased blood flow to the mammary gland that could also just decrease nutrient supply to make milk. And so when you look at those, you know, relative comparison, uh, it's probably a combination of both is what we're, what I'm probably guessing, but would, would you agree with that? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would assume it's a combination. I mean, we have to look at how expensive it is for the immune system to be on and, and energetically it's probably not that expensive. Um, so my gut feeling is that the activated immune system probably plays a bigger role in decreasing food intake because if you feel cruddy, you don't eat as much. Um, and that results in a decrease in milk production. Um, I don't think it's the energetic demand of the immune system. All right. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, scientists do a lot of discovering, but they also invent, and you are an inventor. It is my understanding that you developed a test that measures the metabolic rate of embryonic fish to identify faster growing fish. Do I got this right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, I was lucky during my postdoc, uh, I was working uh, at Vanderbilt and was interested in developing a test to identify insulin sensitizers. And we wanted to have a whole animal to study, not just, you know, a cell line. Mm -hmm. And so we used the zebrafish, which is a very small fish, and you can put them into very small uh, puddles of water uh, in plates, and you can run tests on hundreds to thousands of them at a time. And so our goal was to develop a test that would allow for drug discovery around insulin sensitizers. And we did that. We measured metabolic rate. Insulin increases the metabolic rate of an animal. And so what we did is we measured the uh, metabolic rate of our zebrafish uh, by putting in a chemical that was commonly used in cell culture and allowed us to show uh, which fish had the highest metabolic rate. The great thing about that was, and, and what's funny about science is we go in with these hypotheses and these misconceptions, and then we learn more and, and we're always shocked. So I initially expected that 
because you and I, if we increase our metabolic rate by going to the gym or something, uh, or going for a run, presumably we're going to lose weight. Well, we thought, okay, if we have fish and we measure the high metabolic rate fish and the low metabolic rate fish, and then we separate them based on their metabolic rate, we'll identify genes that affect obesity. Well, we expected the low metabolic rate fish to, to grow more quickly or, uh, yeah, to grow more quickly because they had low metabolic rate, so they, they would lose. But what we didn't think about was that fish are cold-blooded, meaning they don't produce heat. Like you and I, when we go exercise, we produce heat, and that's how we lose weight. Uh, they don't have that same thing. In fact, when we were measuring their metabolic rate, we were measuring how fast they were growing. And so uh, we did that in zebrafish. I subsequently did it in tilapia through USDA-funded grants. Uh, we're now working in salmon and trout. Um, and I sold that company. That was that company was called Generate. I sold it to IMV Technologies, which most of your uh, listeners may know is a big uh, steam and straw producing company. And that's what they're famous for is steam and straws. And so they'll be coming out with that technology, hopefully, uh, within the next year uh, to allow salmon and trout uh, growers to identify faster growing fish. That's interesting. Um, congratulations on that, on that effort. You know, you also have another invention focused on technology that can identify animals that are more feed efficient by evaluating skeletal muscle metabolic rate. I mean, how does this compare to the other invention? Are they two separate things? They are separate inventions, but one actually stemmed from the other. So, we took those high and low metabolic rate fish and we grew them up and we had this beautiful tilapia system here in Arizona. You know, that's the fish we could grow because we needed a warm water fish mm -hmm. and tilapia are amazing. Uh, they grow amazingly quickly. They can handle water. That's 97 degrees. Like they're, they're an amazing species, extremely hardy. We took those high and low metabolic rate eggs and grew those up into fish. And then we took biopsies and we found out that our fish that were growing more quickly, the high metabolic rate eggs actually had a lower skeletal muscle metabolic rate. And we had noticed before that our fish were more feed efficient. So we were wondering why that was. Um, and that skeletal muscle metabolic rate, I actually presented this on an online forum uh, through one of the e-extension programs. And people asked me about this result and I had no explanation. And eventually we realized that we actually had to test for feed efficiency here. If we took skeletal muscle biopsies, we can predict feed efficiency. Um, and so those animals that are expending more energy towards growth when they're young are probably expending less towards maintenance. Um, and that's why at the, when they're adults, we can measure feed efficiency. And we're now, uh, we've started a company, Afani Ag, Efficient Animal Agriculture, E-F-F-A-N-I, um, where we're automating the process so that every producer in the world can take a skeletal muscle biopsy, stick it in our machine, and get an automated um, understanding of the efficiency of that animal and make their breeding selection, you know, only breed for replacement heifers from those animals that are, are most efficient. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Smax Tech, 
Get insights from inside your cows with SmaxTech for higher herd health and profitability. Our Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Adiseo USA, producers of Smartamime M and MilkPay.com. Xzealot, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com because animal health deserves a healthier approach. How do you anticipate like, scaling this up? I and mean, what do you how do what do you envision in five, 10 years' time? Yeah, so we've we've been working with a company out of Phoenix uh, to automate that process. We think that'll be done soon. We're gonna try and hit the market in February 2024. Um, we're gonna start in Arizona and California and then hopefully gradually move, you know, east, um, Idaho, Texas, New Mexico, and and keep heading east. Uh, so that's our plan. Uh, right now, we're hopeful um, that it'll be adopted relatively quickly. We think, you know, if you feed a, a dairy cow two thousand pounds or $2,000 worth of feed a year, obviously, uh, cutting that by, you know, just 10% would make a huge impact on profitability. In the dairy and the beef industry, I think feed constitutes uh, greater than 70% of total production costs. So, that's one of the things we have to address. The other thing I, I really am excited about addressing this for one, you know, my family farms. And so I want to increase, increase producer profits. But the other thing is if we can decrease the feed demand of the animals, we can decrease the environmental impact of production and we can make uh, animal agriculture part of the blue revolution. I agree. You know, um, and I have a question for you and I actually had somebody come to me with this question a while back, but um, I argue you, you have far more experience when it comes to inventions. And so, you know, what do you, what do you see as a scientist as some of the barriers to seeing an invention, you know, reach the marketplace? What were the lessons that you learned that you might want to share with a junior scientist that, you know, has, has an idea, right? And they need to take it to the next step. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. So none of this happens right away. Um, like that fish company, I started working on that project in 2008. Um, and they haven't gone to market yet. So patience, <laughs> number one. Uh, number two is, you know, solve real problems. Like what's the biggest problem, you know, in your industry? And, and that's why uh, in Arizona, I focus on heat stress and uh, you know, across the dairy and beef industry, I focus on, um, you know, feed efficiency because that's a huge contributor to profitability. And then when I look at, at human health, obesity is the leading cause of cancer, heart disease. So, so that's why I focus on that. So pick problems that are important and address those. And then there was a grant that came out, the Mickelson Foundation put out a grant. And this actually caused me to change the way I think about science. They, they put out a grant and they said, I want you to solve, um, I want you to develop a sterile infer that works in dogs and cats and males and females 
to uh, as a single injectable. And it was the first time I thought of science in that way where they gave me a problem, they told me what they wanted me to solve, and I knew what I needed to do. And we got two of those grants. We made significant progress. We, we weren't successful in eventually getting there, and you're going to fail in science. We know failure is pretty much the norm. Um, but it caused me to think about science differently. It wasn't just about discovery anymore. It was about trying to solve problems. So that's really what I focus on is trying to solve problems. And then once you've reached one of those times where you think you actually have solved the problem, then it's time to start investigating how to take it to market. And I know different universities are different in how they handle this. And what I first tried to do was take that fish growth assay and sell it and license it to a lot of the big companies. And they all turned me down because you have to get your invention to a point to where they can see how it hits the market quickly. Mm -hmm. they, they aren't going to take your findings from your paper and apply it. Um, that will take them another 12 years. What they need you to do is get them to the point where they've got a product that's ready to sell within two years. Well, I, well, Ben, I, I think that your, um, your, your advice is, is strong and I encourage anyone that is thinking about, so this process to reach out to you and and, yeah. and uh, obtain some advice. I think advice can go a long way sometimes. Yeah, I'd love to hear from people and, and pick their brain as well. So that's great. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Dr. Rehnquist. Uh, I think your story and your research are inspiring. There's, there's no question about it. Um, and I hope you enjoyed your time on the Dairy Podcast Show. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. To my audience, stay tuned for future episodes that bring you closer to the animal science that defines our world. I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you again, Dr. Rehnquist, and goodbye. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.